So if you haven't been paying attention lately, AI is taking over. And instead of fighting it, I've decided, ah, I might as well just give in. So I asked ChatGPT to write an intro for this podcast, and here's what it said. Welcome to the 301st episode of Two Writers Sling and Yang, the podcast where two established writers discuss the craft of writing, the challenges of publishing the industry, and everything in between. In this episode, our hosts delve into the topic of character development, sharing their insights and experiences on how to create compelling and believable characters in fiction and nonfiction writing. So grab a cup of coffee, sit back, and join our hosts as I sling some yang and give us a peek inside the world of writing. And uh, I mean, that kind of sucks. So then my son Emmett perked up and he said he could generate Barack Obama saying something cool about this show. Hey, it's me, Obama. I just want to say that I am a longtime listener of two writers slinging Yang and a longtime Jeff Perlman fan as well. Also that Catherine Perlman is something else. God damn, Jeff, she's incredible. I fucking mourn for the future. My name is Jeff Perlman. I'm the New York Times bestselling author of 10 books and the host of Two Writers Slinging Yang, the podcast where one writer, me, talks writing with another writer every single week. And today's guest is Caitlin McGrath, the Athletics Toronto Blue Jays beat writer who's in the midst of spring training madness. This is episode number 301. Let's sling some yang. Dad, your podcast sucks. And nobody cares about your stupid TV show. All right, Caitlin. I am literally sitting in my closet surrounded by my wife and my clothing. I woke up five minutes ago. I feel like crap. And you look perky and ready to go. You look like the day has been good to you. Like you look excited to be covering Toronto Blue Jays baseball. It's like noon for me now. So I've had my few hours to wake up. So fair point. So I I have brought you here because I love every now and then on this podcast talking about spring training. I was a baseball writer at Sports Illustrated. I covered a bunch of spring trainings. They would send us down to spring training in late February, give us a car and just say, this is in the heyday of magazine and say, whatever, spend whatever you want, stay where you want, roam the state, report about the different teams. And it was cool. Um, But you've been covering the Blue Jays since 2018. Is spring training cool or is it repetitive and Groundhog's Day-ish? I mean, it's probably a bit of a mixture of both. It depends how long you're there for. It depends how long you spend in each stint. So I was down there for the first two weeks of spring training in Dunedin. And then I've since come home back to Toronto. I'll be here for a couple of weeks and then I'll go back down for the end of camp. And I've done that pattern in the past. And I feel like it's a good one because right when it starts to feel Groundhog Day-ish at the beginning, you sort of know you're coming up to the end of your first stint and then you can go home for a little bit, maybe work on some of those maybe longer pieces that you collected while you were there, but don't have the time to write because you're trying to keep up with all the daily stuff during spring training. So you work on some of the stuff when you go home and then you go back when things start to really start wrapping up a little bit the roster cuts are starting to be made, the team is coming together and you go at the end and do those final few stories. So that I think helps. I do have colleagues and friends that are there for the whole time. And I know that that can be a huge grind because it does get repetitive in Florida, especially. I'm sure you've done spring training, maybe both in Arizona and Florida. Florida, it's a lot more spread out. So the drives are quite a bit longer, which can be a bit of a grind as well because in Arizona, 
For example, I think the drives are much closer together. Some of the teams are actually at the same facilities or like basically neighbors to one another. Florida, most of the teams are spread apart. The Blue Jays are located close to the Phillies and the Yankees. So those drives are fairly short, but the rest of them are long. So yeah, after three, four weeks of doing that, it's it's tiring. I remember spring training being an awful endeavor of having to wake up early every day, eating some shit breakfast every day, rushing to the park, blah, 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 blah. You wake up what time when you get to spring training? So I have to get up at 6 a.m. because I like to get ready a little bit. I like my hair to look okay. I like to look pretty presentable for the day. And I need some time in the morning to sort of wake up and get ready because I'm really not like a morning person. As you say, like the days start really early. You spend all of spring, six weeks or whatever it is, getting up at 6 a.m. and finishing your day early on. And then you immediately go into a season where your workday starts at like 2 p.m. <laughs> and it makes no sense to me because I'm like, how is this getting us ready for the season when we're going to have to stay up till 2 a.m.? But in spring, we have to get up at 6 a.m. But I mean, part of it is just like the days in Florida, they get hot. Players want to be done early. Um, once games start, it goes a little bit later early in camp, like you can be done your days by noon. Like players are leaving the complex by noon, not necessarily when writers are leaving because we have to write our stories and all that stuff, but still days are pretty done pretty early in comparison to like what you're used to in the season when you're maybe writing until midnight at the stadium. That's the first thing about spring that you really have to get used to. It really, for me, it, it is a bit of a shock to the system because as I said, I do not get up early. I wish that I could be a person that got up early and like started my day at 5 a.m. and was very productive. It's just, it's not for me. I envy morning people. I always look at morning people and think, I wish I were you, but I'm not me, you. And it's me, not. Too. Yeah. me too. Um, you get up in the morning, you go to the facility. Do you know what you are looking for? Do you have any idea what you're looking for? Or is every day sort of a blank slate of let's see what transpires? So the Blue Jays are good about giving us kind of a schedule in terms of, especially in those early first two weeks, I would say maybe not even first two weeks, but definitely first week, maybe week and a half, because it's when there's a lot of the reporters there and there's usually a set of guys that you need to talk to. For the Blue Jays, for example, it was like, everyone wants to talk to Bo Bichette one of the first days. Everybody wants to talk to Vlad Guerrero Jr. for one of the first days, George Springer. So the Blue Jays do a good job of like, setting up kind of availabilities with them for everybody. So you kind of know ahead of time, like, okay, today we're getting George Springer. So I'm probably going to write a story about George Springer. So the first few days, you're kind of balancing those, like checking off the box of those daily stuff with those main guys you need to touch upon. But you also have availability time in the clubhouse. So the clubhouse will open for maybe an hour in the morning and then an hour again in the afternoon. And so for me, I tried to really go into spring training this year, being a little bit more organized, spring training, I think like it's almost as a writer, the more reps you do it, the easier it gets. But it is quite challenging because it feels like there's a lot of time, but there's also a lot to cover. And there's so much opportunity that you have to kind of be organized into like what you want to prioritize. So this year, I tried to really go into it with sort of a basically a long list of things that I wanted to write about. And I would go in with an idea of a guy I wanted to talk to, maybe get this story done this day, but I remain kind of open to like, okay, if that guy's not there, let me go through like the story list of my idea in my head and then say, okay, if this guy is standing there, why don't I just pivot and work on that story? So I tried to have some specific stories where I needed to talk to specific guys. I also tried to have stories where I just needed to talk to 
any of the pitchers. Because then if I just saw any of the pitchers around, I could say, okay, I'm working on this kind of broad story about pitching. I need to ask you a few questions. Do you feel like players are more approachable, more happy to talk to you, more open in the environments of spring training than say after game 73 of, you know, against Detroit? <laughs> um, I think so. I mean, definitely early on in spring training, there's a relaxed atmosphere and they haven't seen you for a good few months. And I think there's also for me, like, I also try to, if I can touch base with everybody on the major league team first, just to say, hello, how was your off season before I'm sticking my phone in the face, asking them for an interview. Like, I think that it's important to touch base with the guys and just be friendly and like, remember that they're human beings and like ask them what they did. I know a lot of players on the Blue Jays for whatever reason this year, like a lot of them had babies. So it was like checking in on like, okay, like how is everything going with the new family and all that stuff. And so that's important to me, but I think like, yeah, generally speaking, there is a more relaxed vibe, especially early on in camp. And I think in general, this year for the Blue Jays was probably a little bit more relaxed because it is a team that's kind of set. Like in years past, there's been a lot of young prospect type guys that were like trying to make the team. So like four or five years ago, going up to Bo Bichette, like he might be more intense because he's trying to make the team. He's trying to prove himself that he can be a major leaguer. Now he's an established guy. He's a little bit more relaxed. His spring trainings are kind of about working on his approach or his, any sort of individualized thing. It's not so much about proving that he can make the team. Like, so I think that was different about this year's camp too. It's like the Blue Jays team was pretty set outside of a few positions at sort of like the end of the roster, like the 26th man, maybe the fifth starter, although the fifth starter is more or less kind of decided, I think, but there's not that like necessarily like com internal competition intensity. You have the interesting uh, experience of covering in Vladimir Guerrero, a, a legit major league baseball superstar and be a legit major league su uh, superstar who doesn't speak a ton of English. Does that make it difficult to cover a superstar? Um, I haven't found that to be, I mean, I think for one, Vladdy's so like fun to just be around that you can get a lot out of just watching him play or like watching him interact with his teammates. Like he's a team first guy. You'll always see him, you know, congratulating one of his teammates, interacting with his teammates in the dugout, having fun with them, whether it's in the field or in the in the dugout. He also has fun with his opponents at first base. Um, I think he's like a perfect first baseman because he has that like friendly, like will it, he can talk to anybody type of thing, which I think like is always key for a first baseman. It's like you're welcoming them um, to, I don't know, the bases. And so he... I think that for me, I haven't found it to be difficult at all, really. We all easily have a translator there that can translate all his interviews. And I think as as he's gotten more and more comfortable in his role with the Blue Jays, he's honestly been a lot more open, um, getting into more details. I think early on when you're like a young guy, and this isn't exclusive to Vlad, but just any young player, you might be a little bit more like guarded in terms of what you're going to say. Um, because, you know, you don't want to say anything wrong and you're just kind of still getting used to having all of these microphones in your face. Like, I think sometimes we forget what strange dynamic that must be. I mean, imagine if you're doing your job and then people are asking you like how you did your job that day and you have to explain right. to a microphone. So um, I think as he's gotten older and more comfortable in his role, I think he just opened up up in general and he does it in Spanish, but we get, we have a translator and it's fine. But yeah, I, I have not found 
it to be, you know, difficult. And, and you're, if you're just chit chatting with him, he's happy to speak with you in English. He's friendly. Um, it's just for formal interviews and stuff. He still wants to do it with the translator. So I remember like, uh, I'm dating myself majorly here, but I, I did a piece for sports illustrated when Ichiro was a rookie with the uh, Seattle Mariners and ended up being my first cover story at SI. It was a huge thrill for me. And I flew out to Seattle and I would have the interpreter and I would say, so blah, 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 blah. And Ichiro would respond in this long, beautiful answer in Japanese. And the interpreter would say, Ichiro says he is very happy to be here. And I'd be like, wait, why, why? So do you feel, I mean, I always found it difficult and it's one of the reasons I learned Spanish. I'm not great, but I'm okay. Because I just like, I found it difficult to work through an interpreter because I didn't feel like I was always getting a full understanding of what the person was said. Uh, the Blue Jays have an interpreter, Hector LeBron. Do you feel like when you interview someone in a different language, you're able to get the full essence of what the person says? Yeah, I mean, it's always tough, right? Like, and good on you for learning Spanish. I wish that I could. Uh, I have attempted to learn French a few times <laughs> growing up in Canada, where we're required to take it in school. And I tried it in university to take French and I was just, I could like read it and write, but I was just never very good at speaking. I think I have a very like tough time with the accents and everything like that. So um, I have basically gone away every off season. And I was like, oh, I need to learn Spanish. I need to learn Spanish. Like I haven't yet. You can I do know. It. I should try. I should really, really make an effort, but yeah, I hear you. And I think that that's why I, I do admire like people that go out and either learn the language or just know the language. And I think they, it is, it's, it's nice. Like I, it's sometimes I feel like a level of guilt that like, I'm sort of relying on these players to learn English to help me do my job when it's like, well, why don't I learn Spanish and make it easier for them or just communicate with them when in the language they're more comfortable in. So, yeah, I mean, it is tough. I mean, you, the thing is that you do the best you can, you use the interpreter, you're very appreciative of the interpreter. And as far as I'm concerned, like, I think that none of my stories has necessarily like suffered because I'm going through a translator or anything like that. But do I think that they could be better if I was able to have those like conversations with the player directly? Of course, like, because you know, like when I'm able to interview a player in English and they do say something maybe as an aside or like just catches your attention, maybe you zero in on that. Whereas maybe in translation, some of that stuff can be lost. So it would be it would be helpful, I think. Um, maybe this is another sign that I should be motivated to learn Spanish. A lot of NBA writers complain that the league has changed in such a way that um, let's say you're covering the Lakers, just as an example, and you want to get, you want to do a deep, deep sit down for the LA Times about D'Angelo Russell. You want to get an hour with D'Angelo Russell. That's very hard these days to get an hour with anybody. Let's say you, Caitlin, writing for The Athletic, you know, a, a big operation, wants to do a deep dive in Bo Bichette. Is it possible to get an hour sit down with Bo Bichette in the modern media landscape? It would definitely have to be planned. Um, and I think to some extent for that level of time, maybe you would need to not necessarily like map out what your story is going to be because you probably don't know, but like kind of explain why you might need him for an hour, whether it's like, you know, I want to tell the story of how you got here and things that people don't know and, you know, all this kind of stuff. But um, yeah, I think so. I mean, I think I've heard from NBA writers that it's different 
um, even their sort of like post and pregame availabilities, baseball to its credit, um, and we're very lucky this way, has maintained like a a good level of access for us before games, after games. Players do have places to hide before games. So it's like it's not necessarily walk in and every single player sitting at his locker waiting. Like there's so much pre and post game like routine work now I think that maybe didn't exist a long time ago like players are so in tune with what they need to do to get their body ready what they need to do to get their mind ready what they need to do after the game immediately then an hour after the game so like there's that that you have to kind of work around so and the thing is like players are that's their priority right they've got to perform and so if their routine takes this amount of time they're going to take that amount of time before the game to do it. And sometimes that's going to cut into time that maybe you have to talk to them. But I've found successful ways to work around that, whether it's sometimes guys might prefer to talk to you after they're done batting practice, like they've got a whole routine set out. And then as they're kind of like walking off the field, you might get time to sit down with them. But to answer your original question, like if it was Boba Shett and I needed an hour with him, I feel fairly confident that if I was to ask and arrange it, it would be able to be done but it would not necessarily just like happen at the drop of a hat like it would have to sort of be planned my least favorite place on earth by far hands down no close second is a major league baseball clubhouse i hated standing in clubhouses i hated waiting in clubhouses i felt like an intruder i felt like i was back in junior high and like the cool kids are over here and i'm like the not cool kid kind of standing against his locker and i fucking hated every every minute of it like um are you comfortable in a clubhouse? Do you find the clubhouse setting uh, comfortable? And are there ways to make it worth your time? I mean, comfortable. I mean, yes, comfortable that like I'm comfortable in there doing my job because like that's what it requires. But I don't like fool myself that it is like my domain or like where I <laughs> where I belong. You know, like it's it's part of my job to go in there. And sometimes you do have to stand around kind of doing nothing because you're waiting for someone I try to not treat the clubhouse as like my own. So yeah, if I'm going to have like a lengthy, maybe personal conversation that I needed to talk to another writer or a friend or a colleague or whatever in there, like maybe don't do that in the middle of the clubhouse. Like maybe do that um, when you're outside in the field or maybe when you're back in the press box or something like that. So I try to keep like my own conversations kind of like limited and keep my eye on like who I'm looking for. And also like, I think it's good to like, if you're in the clubhouse, maybe just like use it for useful time, even if it's not the player that you want to talk to. But if the player is like standing there and you're standing there, like you don't have to stand there awkwardly, like not speaking because he's not the guy that you need to talk to. Like you can just have like little chit chat conversations. Like usually there's TV playing highlights or something. So if there's something interesting on the TV, it's like, hey, look at that. Did you watch this game or like whatever it may be like? um, But I do think it's important to like be in there because a sometimes stories come out of there. Like I've been standing in the clubhouse before and like there's an interaction that's happened and like, that's been my lead or like, that's been part of the story. Um, and I do think like as much as it's, you know, guys kind of like grumble, like, Oh, the media's in there. But I mean, also when you're there, there's a level of like, well, you know, she's showing up to work. She's coming back every single day. She's standing around there. Like there's, um, there's usefulness to that too. I think just as, as like a matter of 
showing up for your job the way that they obviously show up for their job. So it's a, it's a definitely, it's a tricky balance. It's you understand. I think it's just important to understand that the clubhouse is belongs to the players. It's their domain. You're in there as a guest. You're in there to do a job. You're not in there to hang out. They are in there to hang out. Like it is specifically their place to hang out. So kind of just like have respect for that, but, and, and just use it for the opportunity that it is like, try to make the most of it. And if you don't need to be in there, then just leave. Like there's been times where it's like, eh, there's no one in here. I'm just going to go stand outside. I'd rather stand on the field or like I'll stand out in the hallway or do something else. So uh, yeah, I try to keep it. Um, I try to keep it professional. Like when I'm in there, of course, and just treat it for what it is. Have you ever, ever, ever had a player, official, anyone express annoyance that women are in a place where these guys change? No, I haven't, which is good because it means we've come a long way. <laughs> I've had many women reporters on this podcast from past eras of covering baseball. And the clubhouse used to be a just a shit show, an absolute mm-hmm. shit show. And I feel like I feel like that speaks to the enlightenment of players, don't you? Yeah. And I think there's also clubhouses now are much more spacious and there's more places where they can change. And so, and I think that there's just like, yeah, I think there's just a different attitude. I think there's a different openness into it. And there's probably like players. Yeah, you're right. That have come up through the minors and there's been women reporting. I mean, I think the minors, they don't open the clubhouse as much. I can't remember what the rules are around minor league clubhouses, but just in general, um, there's also just like more women working on teams, right? Like there's a lot of women trainers. There's a lot of women coaches now, thankfully. So I think there's, there's that too. A lot of players come up in the minor leagues and it's like they're trainers, they're, you know, support staff on the team, the coaches on the team, all these kinds of things. There's a woman around them all the time. So I think it's just getting more used to that as well, which obviously helps. Would you say the era of... How would you know what it's like to be a baseball player toward women, which definitely was a thing, is not a thing anymore? I mean, I try to approach it very curiously. And if I don't understand something, like I will ask a player, like, I don't understand. Like, I don't try to pretend to know all the ins and outs of how they do their job. Like, I'll give you an example, which just happened a few days ago, where it's like a player was explaining something that he had done in the offseason, like an adjustment that he was making. And I told him, I was like, I don't really understand. Like, can you explain to me like what that means, like what you're doing differently? And he just showed me like, he's like, okay, so this is how I used to do it. And so now I'm doing this. And he like, just, like, I mean, obviously it was like after a game and it was like, it was just a relaxed moment. And he just demonstrated it to me. And I was like, oh, okay, I understand. So if I say it like this, and this is accurate, like I would say it like this. And he's like, yep, that's how you would say it. That's how you would write it. So like, I think maybe it's just like, just being open to like your own curiosity and admitting what you don't know. And just asking them like genuinely, like, I think that that also helps. Like if you just approach it with a very like open mind and like general curiosity. I think they're very receptive to that. And they just understand that like you want to learn like things like pitch grips and stuff like that. It's like, you just ask, can you show me like, how, how does that work? Can you show me? And they'll gladly like grab a ball and they'll show you. And some of the players will even be like, yeah, you can take a picture. Like that's fine. So that you can kind of remember it and understand. So I think that helps too. It's just like, I don't pretend to like, be a baseball player. And I don't pretend to think that their job is not extremely hard. Like uh, it is like, it's very challenging, obviously. So I think that's kind of just like how I approach it generally. Man, woman, old, young, covering music, covering sports, covering politics. You can never go wrong asking someone to break it down. And I've also like told some players too, if they've been helpful to me, I've also 
instead, like, hey, if you ever have any question about the media or if I can ever help you in any way, let me know. And like, yeah, I mean, probably I'm not going to be as helpful, but certainly sometimes players might be curious about something like, um, you know, whether it's a line of questioning or like, you know, why, why do they get this type of question or why do they get that type of question? I mean, if I could help them anyway, I will offer that help. And I think they're far, far more helpful to me than I am to them. You wrote a piece February 16th of this year. Kevin Gaussman aware he'll be watched, quote, a little bit closer as Bach crackdown starts. And your lead was under the covered mounds at the Blue Jays player development complex. Kevin Gaussman was throwing his first side session of camp on Thursday, the first official day of pitcher and catcher workouts. As Gaussman ready to deliver a pitch to catcher Danny Jansen, the right-hander's front foot tapped rhythmically. It's a familiar movement, one he said, quote, I kind of do naturally. Beginning this year, however, it's a habit that will be closely scrutinized. Along with an array of new rules being introduced by Major League Baseball this season, including a pitch clock and a ban on shifting, the league will be cracking out on box and illegal pitches. The rules surrounding those aren't new, even if they tend to be poorly understood by the average fan. How box and illegal pitches play into the new pitch clock, however, is a reason for MLB's crackdown. It's this piece about him having to adjust to new rules, blah, blah, blah. Do you, as a writer, need to care about this shit to cover it? And what I mean is, do the new rules need to interest you? Do you need to study the new rules? Do you need to understand the new rules? Do you need to find the new rules fascinating in order to write well about the new rules? A good question, because there's some people at The Athletic, some of my colleagues that are very fascinated with the new rules, and they are covering them a lot. And I actually think they will be interesting. I think the pitch clock is cool. I I do like the pitch clock. I mean, I've seen people like maybe it's hyperbolic or not. I don't know, but it's like the, you know, the biggest shift in baseball in hundred years or something. And some of the early returns of it are helpful to me. If the game's going to end after two and a half hours, I'll take that for sure. Do you have to care about the new rules? I, yeah, I think it's interesting. Like I think you can cover them if you don't care. Like you can cover them just factually how they're happening. And I would say I find myself sort of in the middle where like I am not completely overtaken by fascination of the new rules. I would not characterize myself as a baseball historian. So I think some of the people that might be more inclined to be very interested in the rules maybe come at from that angle where it's like they are just really fascinated to see like the game changing because they study the game. They are fascinated how it's evolved over the years. They have know so much history about the game and all that kind of stuff. So I don't necessarily come at it from that point of view because I would not say that I'm much of a baseball historian, but I think I'm interested in like how it'll change the play. Like I think it'll, I'm interested in if it will lead to a quicker paced game, if it will lead to more stolen bases, like from my point of view, like, and I know the Blue Jays have talked a little bit this year about being more aggressive on the base pass. Well, like, is the new bigger bases going to like help with that or lead into that? Are they going to be a more chaotic team on the base pass because of these bigger bases? Like that will probably fold into my stories. And so in that way, like, yeah, I have to be fascinated in into the bigger bases or how that impacts play. Um, But I also think like, how it unfolds will like lead to that fascination. Like, I don't know that I need to be writing about it right now, but if I see these patterns emerging, then it's like, okay, this is a interesting story. Like, let's explore this. Let's explore how they're using the bigger bases and stuff like that. So, yeah. Your manager is John Schneider, who like myself went to the university of Delaware. I didn't realize that until last night. How important is your relationship with the manager? 
It's definitely important for the reporters to have a good rapport with him to be able to ask him all kinds of questions and just to also kind of be have a friendly relationship. Like it's not always going to be perfect. Like there's going to be questions where, yeah, maybe a question you ask rubs the manager the wrong way. And like that happens, like that's part of the job. Like you have to ask difficult questions sometimes and the manager has to answer those difficult questions sometimes. But what do you need as a beat reporter of a team? What do you need a manager to be to you? For the most part, I think it's being that like kind of overarching spokesperson for the team, like the team on the field. And to some extent, the players have to be that as well. Like there's veteran players, there's starting starting pitchers tend to be like guys that you'll go to that speak for the team quite a bit, given their role. Um, there's central players to the team, like the star players also have to speak for the team. They have to speak for themselves. But I think the manager also has to kind of be that like daily spokesperson for the team. And it's interesting because the manager role has like changed so much. Now there's a lot more communication between a manager and a front office and a manager and the players to a lot of, to some extent, like the manager is kind of like the go between, between the on the field product, the players, he is their go-to, he is their leader, their coach, their men, like mentor, their whatever they need him to be. He's that, but he's also the guy that is dealing with the front office and the front office and all their analytics and all their thinking. And they have some ideas about how they want the team to play and how they want the team to look. And the manager has to digest those from the front office and has to digest the ideas from the players. And it has to create like this cohesive product on the field and it has to be a winning product in the case of the Blue Jays, because they're a team that wants to win. Uh, well, every team wants to win, but some teams are more active in their pursuit of wanting to win. So it's interesting. Like I don't envy the role of the manager, to be honest. I think it's a, it's a very tough job to make everybody happy. And you probably aren't making everybody happy. I think John Schneider has honestly like talked about that. And the, the good thing with him is that he has a lot of history with the Blue Jays organization. He's been with the Blue Jays basically his entire professional baseball career, right? He was drafted by them. He played with them. Then immediately when he he retired as a player. He began coaching with them. He's gone up the entire system with the team to the point where now he's managing the Blue Jays. He's managed a lot of the players on the Blue Jays and when they were in the minors. So he's got like ties throughout the organization everywhere. So I think that gives him a bit of an advantage to some extent that he, everybody knows who he is. Everybody's friendly with him. Like he just, he know, he has all these personal connections already. So he's starting at that point where everybody kind of knows his intention, knows who he is as a person, as a manager, all that kind of stuff. And he's just got to like now do it at the highest level, which is obviously very tough. But from my perspective, it's just like, I just need him to be able to answer the questions for the team. Like, why did they do this? Why did they make this move? What was the thinking behind this move? when this move went wrong, why did you make that move? What was the thinking? How do you think it went wrong? Why is this player hitting here? Why is this player not like, so it's just like, it, it is, he has got to answer for a lot of things. And he doesn't necessarily have to answer for like why a player, you know, didn't execute this. Then you go to the player. But I think it's sort of like more the strategy, the thinking, all that stuff behind those decisions. Before we continue with two writers singing Yang, a quick word from our sponsor. Hey, this is Jeff Perlman. I'm here with my daughter, Casey. So Casey, I heard Taylor Swift redid all her albums. Uh-huh. You know who's awesome? That guy on TikTok. Uh-huh. I'm feeling hella dope. Let's get matching tats, kid. No. What the hell? You've been home for a while now, and I'm trying to connect with you, college kid, but nothing works. Just because I'm 18 doesn't mean I'm into trivial stuff. Talk to me about the goods. 
RoyalRetros.com throwback Doug Flutie jerseys, handcrafted and perfect for the late holiday gift. I hear Stranger Things is crazy. Dad, stop. I have a Caitlin McGrath story from the Western Gazette, 2000. Oh my God. <laughs> 2009, this is October 1st, 2009. This would be Western University student newspaper. Mm-hmm. CUP negotiations reach agreement. It's the earliest story I could find by you. Hungry Western students can breathe a sigh of relief knowing that Western's Board of Governors has ratified a two-year collective agreement with food services staff. Then I have another story from a year later. Mustangs shoot for the top. The Mustangs women's basketball team will be missing a familiar face when the regular season play starts this weekend. Amanda Anderson, a former Mustangs point guard, blah, 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 since graduate, blah, blah. Anyway, I have these stories. Okay. You're the student at Western University. And I know when you got there, you're from Toronto. When you got to Western University, not exactly a journalism powerhouse, neither was Delaware where I went. Your idea was, I want to go into sports TV. If I go into sports, I want to go into sports TV. I heard you say in a different interview. Somewhere you're writing for the Western University Gazette, the student Mm -hmm. newspaper, and something about it grabs you. What about it grabbed you? I think my attention was, I grew up, I don't know, you probably know the names like, Jay Onright and Dan O'Toole, they were these, of course, sport, they were the, yeah, they were sportscasters here and they kind of made like sports center, basically like a comedy slash sports show. And yeah. obviously they went to the States and all this. So I grew up watching that every morning, which is kind of where the wanting to sort of be a sports anchor came from, I think. But yeah, then I went to Western and I, the answer is that I went to the Gazette because it was the easiest one to just walk in and start. I think at the time I had looked into like, the radio station there and the TV station there. And it had more of a like robust, like you had to like start volunteering. You had to do all this stuff. And then you, like, it just, it had like more of a process to get started. Whereas at the Gazette, it was like walk in and you start. And I was like, Oh, okay. That sounds easy. So that's what I did. Um, and so I walked in the first day and I think that story that the first story you read was the first story. And I didn't really know what to do. So I was like, oh, I want to write. They're like, okay, here's a news thing you can do. And I was like, eh, I don't really want to do news, but I didn't want to say no. So um, I, I do that. I leave. Next week, I go back in. They're like, oh, you're back. Want to write another news story? I'm like, no, I'm going to go to the sports desk. So then when I went back there and then I immediately started doing sports. So what grabbed me? I think like I just, I don't know. I don't want to sound like too cocky or anything, but like I just like immediately got it. Like I actually was an English literature student um, in university and I really struggled with writing essays. Like it was a, it was a really like probably not until my third and fourth year did I sort of fully start to understand like the process of writing essays. Like I just really struggled with getting my thoughts out in an academic setting clearly. And then when I did sports writing. And when I did journalistic writing, it just clicked for me. I was like, you just write these little short sentences and every sentence is a paragraph and you just explain what happened and that's it. And you're out. Like, and I just, it just clicked with me. And then actually like by doing the Gazette, the years that I was there, like I did become better. I remember a professor at one point was like, I read your stories in the newspaper and you're a good writer. Just pretend your essay is like an article. And then I was like, oh, I could. So then it finally clicked for me. So thank you to that professor. Um, But yeah, like I think that the initial like attraction to it was like I had a sort of like natural inclination to like know how to tell the story in the sort of journalistic way. And then I just kept doing it and it was fun and I got to go to games. And so, yeah, that's how it started. Your sort of path to being a beat writer is actually pretty untraditional in that usually it's she covered preps here and she covered small college football here or something. And you are really 
an editor for a long time. I mean, you edited your student newspaper, which you wrote for too. You're an editorial assistant at CBC. You were a sports web producer at the National Post. You were assistant editor at Yahoo Canada. Editor, editor, editor. There's an article I found from the uh, the Western University Report. J school grad, well-prepared for digital job. And it was all about you sort of being at the National Post, working the desk. Most people in your shoes wind up being editors for 40 years. What shifted that made you wind up a beat writer? Well, I always wanted to be a writer. And I am also kind of thankful my path was what it was because I learned so much being on the desk, like especially at the National Post, because that was like my first, um, like CBC was an internship and it was kind of bouncing around different things. But the National Post was like, I was at this job for like an extended amount of time and I was on the night desk. And so I was handling like the copy that would come in in the evening to go into the next day's paper. And then I put it on the website and I did all the web stuff. And then I had a colleague that was always with me that put the paper together. And so we kind of work together and all that kind of stuff. But I would say like, just like reading stories helped me learn how to be a writer, like, like reading. Um, it's funny. Like they're still my colleagues now, like Eric Kareen, our Raptors writer at the athletic. He worked with me at the national post, Sean Fitzgerald. He's a GA at the athletic. He worked with me at the post. Um, and then our former baseball writer, John Lott worked at the post with me. So I just like would read their stuff. And I don't even think I like intentionally like knew I was learning how to write, but it was like through like just osmosis of like reading all this copy and posting all this copy and like always kind of being around stories. Like I just kind of like learned how to write. And so, yeah, I came to the athletic and I did sort of the editing thing for a number of years. And I was really like doing the thing where a lot of young people do, where it's like, you do your job, but then maybe you do find stories on the side, like whether it was like doing some stories that maybe don't fall into like the four major sports stories type of thing. So whether it was like finding some like women's hockey stories at the time, I did some tennis stuff. So like stuff that like wasn't really the other um, writers weren't doing it. I was like, try to like find things that I could do and I could work on. So I was getting a bit to a point where I was like, I really want to be a writer full time. I really want to like just be able to do that. I did not necessarily like want to be an editor for my entire life. And then it just was like very lucky that we had a situation where the Athletic Toronto was expanding to the Athletic Canada. And so we had a writer that was in Toronto previously that he was covering the Blue Jays for us and he moved back to Vancouver. And so they needed someone to help John Lott because he kind of did not want to do it on his own. You know, he's nearing sort of nearing the end of his career. He didn't want to do as much of the travel and all that kind of stuff. So I just kind of put up my hand and I was like, I'm in Toronto. I can do it. And I just did it. Like I just started doing it. They're like, yep, sure. You can go. So that first year, 2018, I actually did not cover spring training because it was basically April right before the season where they kind of were like, okay, yep. We'll send you, you can help John, you can start doing it. And I just like did not stop essentially, <laughs> like to the point where they're like, yeah, I guess you're the beat writer now. So, but I would, whenever young people ask me like, oh, I want to be a writer. I'm like, honestly, like take any job you can get. Like, don't like just say no to like editor jobs or like web producer jobs or whatever. Like that, that stuff helped me. Like I loved doing it early on because I really do think it also is like, it's helpful to be an editor because then you learn how writers are. And I think you gain some like empathy for the job like you understand like the pressures like you and I was always really happy to help writers too it's like oh if they had a little typo it's like yep yeah, no I found it it's it's cool or like oh can you make the headline this it's like yep yeah. like you know like so I feel like that helps me as a writer now too because I know what it's like to be an editor so I try to be like very easy to work with as much as possible like get my copy in in time um you know try to make sure it's 
clean, make sure the word counts good, like all that kind of stuff, because I know what it's like on the other side. And I know how busy it can be when you're an editor. Because you are here and you're on this podcast, I'm required to ask you a question that I ask everyone who appears on this podcast. Okay. And you are still relatively young in the world of beat writing, so maybe you don't have a great answer. But what is your best awkward moment or confrontation on the beat thus far in your career? Oh, man. I mean, I've definitely had a lot of like awkward moments in terms of like playing it off, like asking a stupid question and then just trying to like play it off. Like, uh -huh. like that happens to me like still now <laughs> I will ask an awkward question and then it's like, um, what constitutes an awkward question? Sometimes when I just ask like a very obvious question and they're like, don't you know this? I remember like one of my first interviews when I was on the beat, like 2018 and it was like Justin smoke and who was like a very like laid back type of guy. And I was like, again, this was probably my first week on the beat. And I was like, not totally nervous to go up to him, but just like, okay, I got to do it. I remember going up to him and I was like, can I ask you two quick questions or something like that, which was my first mistake. So I asked him like two questions. And I think he said something along the lines of like, that was two. Like, <laughs> I was like, no, I have some more. Um, so I, I feel like that was one of the lessons I learned. Like don't never give like a definitive number of questions you're going to ask. <laughs> Make it high. Can I just ask you 10 questions? And then yeah, if you only just, ask seven, you look good. Yeah, that's another good tip. But yeah, I try to be as vague as possible. Do you have a few general minutes for me to ask you some questions um, so that they don't expect you to be like, or if I do say like, I have one question for you, I usually will be like, okay, it's one question. Um, but yeah, be as vague as possible because you don't want to set them up to think you're going to be one minute when you're actually going to be 10 because then they'll be annoyed with you. <laughs> right, right, right. Let me ask you a final, final question. The Blue Jays are definitely a considered a contender going into the season. They were a wild card team last year. Let's say they just suck. Let's say they, they're a bad team this year. In your role at The Athletic, can you go hard on the Blue Jays? Or is that not your role? Is your role just to report from a, uh, a few steps back? Or can you, can you go hard on the Blue Jays and their shortcomings? No, I could go hard on the Blue Jays and their shortcomings. I think at points last year, like when they were kind of in spiraling points, they fired their manager midseason. Like it was not going well for them at points. Um, you know, I think I tried to point out what was happening and what they needed to do. And it was hard last year to explain because some of it was kind of inexplicable. Like, why are they so inconsistent? Um, but I, I did ask. Like, I remember asking players, why, why, why? And it's like, yeah. Um, but yeah, no, I think that if they do have some disaster season and everything goes wrong and they're a huge disappointment, then yeah, definitely would be my job to figure out what, what the heck happened. What's more likely the Blue Jays win the World Series this year or the Blue Jays lose 90 games? <laughs> oh, um, eh. I'll be an optimist and say win the World Series. I've already covered some 90 loss seasons. So I haven't covered a hundred win season yet, though. So maybe this year. Maybe uh, this year. You never know. Well, Caitlin, I think you do a great freaking job. I've loved reading through your clips and kind of prepping. And uh now I'm all about the Blue Jays and the athletic coverage of the Blue Jays. <laughs> I um I really appreciate you doing this very much. Thank you. Seriously. Yeah, of course. Thank you. And thank you for pulling up my old clips. It's a it's a good um, trip down memory lane. I'm. I will just say I'm glad you didn't find the certain ones that I would be. <laughs> probably I feel the same way about my. We all have back catalogs that we're not always. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. All good. I want to thank today's guest, Caitlin McGrath, for joining me on Two Riders Singing Yang. You can follow Caitlin on Twitter at Caitlin C McGrath and read her work at The Athletic. 
If you have a chance and enjoy Two Riders Sing Yang, please go to the vehicle of your choice and leave a nice review. Music is by the great MC Whiteout. Thanks again for joining me. And remember, keep riding. <laughs>